Father, we thank you that even when we were faithless, you remained faithful to us. That your faithfulness towards us, your steadfast love towards your people, it is not contingent on our performance. It's not contingent upon our strength. It's not contingent upon our ability to hold on to you. It's contingent on your ability to hold on to us. And we thank you that you never let us go. That even as we are prone to wander and we are prone to drift and we are prone to leave the God we love, you never let us out of your grip and you were irrevocably committed to us. We thank you for this. We thank you, Father, that you do not lose a single one of those who belong to you. Lord, for the brother or sister who's in this room today, whose faith is holding on by a thread, will you remind them this morning that you are holding on to them? And as we gather in this place this morning, and for those who listen online today, we ask that you would now edify your church strengthen us, build us up as your people, glorify the name of your son, Jesus Christ, above all things, sanctify us in the truth of your word. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Speak it to our hearts this morning. We ask all of these things in the mighty matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'll encourage you to turn in your Bible with me to Judges chapter 7. That's where we're going to spend our time together this morning. If you're new with us, what our church family has been doing for the last few weeks is we're walking chapter by chapter through the Old Testament book of Judges. We had a short break last weekend for our student ministry, and today we're picking right back up in Judges chapter 8. But before we dive into the text this morning, just a couple months into the new year, I want to make sure we pause and just celebrate some pretty incredible things that the Lord is doing in our midst. As a church, we try to embody and champion a culture of celebration because we never want to cease to be thankful for the Lord and all the things that he is doing. First and foremost, Ever since we moved into this building last June, we have celebrated baptisms every single month, sometimes twice a month. And today uh, we have several more baptisms to celebrate at the end of our third worship service. So can we praise God um, for those who are publicly professing faith in Christ today? Amen. Beyond that, um, any of our students and student ministry leaders in the room, where are you guys at? Man, last weekend was the weekend. And we had uh, over 100 uh, middle school, high school students and their leaders, campus band from North Greenville University, Nico Williams was our guest speaker last Sunday, and we just saw the Lord move in an incredible way in the lives and hearts of our students and leaders. I came here Wednesday night for their testimony nights. Just incredible to hear how God is working in them and among them. And so students, we just want you to know we see you and we love you and we are so excited about what God's doing in our heart and your life. You know, I didn't preach last Sunday, so my family came to the eight o'clock worship service and then we went home. And, and by that third service, my phone was blowing up. That's the one our students came to. And I heard there was a whole extra kind of energy at 1130 uh, last week. And so we praise God for that. Students, we, we invite you, lead us in that way um, as we rejoice and we worship together to the glory of God. Third thing I wanna celebrate this morning is if you probably noticed who came in today, our parking expansion has begun. This is a really big deal, especially for this service and the next service. And so um, we're, we're just step one into this. We did receive approval from the town of Port Royal this past week. We expect the work is only gonna take just a couple weeks. 
It's gonna give us a lot more breathing room on Sunday morning. Because of how generously you gave back at the end of 2023 is our year-end giving push, that expansion is gonna be even larger than what we originally planned. It's gonna give us about 20 more spaces than we even thought we were gonna be able to get. So thank you so much for your generosity. We will just ask over the next couple of weeks, there's gonna be a little, some changes to our procedures in and out of the building. Just continue to follow the directions of our parking team. Uh, be gracious to them. They're playing human Tetris out there every single week and, and it's nuts. They've done an incredible job. Um, so just thank you so much for your continued patience while we have figured that out. Um, but we expect that to take just a couple weeks and you should see a lot more breathing room in the future. Next thing we wanna make sure we go ahead and highlight now a full month in advance. We've communicated this via email the last couple weeks. Uh, next month, we get to celebrate our first Easter in this building. You know, we thought this was gonna be last year. It got delayed one year. I want to just make sure you know the lay of the land for, uh, for that weekend. So uh, Friday, March 29th, we're going to hold a Good Friday service in here at 6 p.m. And our theme for our Good Friday service is going to be It Is Finished. And then for Easter weekend, we are going to hold five worship gatherings on Sunday, or excuse me, Saturday night and Sunday morning, all identical across the board. So Saturday, we'll gather here at 4 p.m. and at 6 p.m., then Sunday morning at all of our normal times. And here's why we're doing that. One Sunday a year, the mission field comes to us. One Sunday a year out of all the other Sundays without twisting anybody's arm or having to buy them off with lunch or, or you know, bribe them to come in the door. Uh, lost people who don't know Jesus, people who've been detached from the church for a long time, people who know nothing about Jesus, voluntarily wake up and say, let's go to church today. And so we want to do everything we possibly can so our, to, to reach them with the message of the gospel. So our Good Friday service theme is it is finished. Our Easter services theme will be he is risen. And we're going to talk about the promise of the empty tomb. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ is evidence that there is absolutely no situation that's too difficult for God to overcome. And that's what we're going to see as we get into Judges chapter 7 this morning. Two weeks ago, we introduced the first of two major judges in the book of Judges, and it's the story of Gideon. And we saw two weeks ago that God intentionally chooses weak people, and he uses weak people in order to prove that he is strong. And in the same way that God chooses to use weak people in order to prove his strength, sometimes he pulls together difficult situations so that he can show off and show out that there's nothing that's too big for him. So this morning from Judges chapter seven, we're going to see that God orchestrates impossible situations in order to demonstrate his immeasurable strength. God on purpose orchestrates impossible looking situations in order to demonstrate his immeasurable strength. Our God loves to stack the deck against himself. He loves to make it look like there's absolutely no way, and then he shows up and makes a way. And that's what we're going to see through the next uh, chapter of the story of Gideon today and Judges chapter 7. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 8. It says, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. Everybody say many. many. They're too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still, everybody say still. still, still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. 
So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths with 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he set all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley." The Lord orchestrates impossible situations in order to demonstrate his immeasurable strength. He makes it impossible and difficult on purpose. So what we see in Judges chapter seven is a picture of how God wins. This is how the Lord wins the day. First, we see in verses one through eight, he builds the smallest army. He intentionally builds the smallest army. The Lord has raised up Gideon to lead the Midianites. And we see here that he's assembled together 32,000 men. And the Lord's problem with this is not that Gideon has too few men, but, but what's the issue? He's got too many. God knows that if Israel wins this battle with 32,000 men, they're gonna take all the credit and the glory for themselves. God knows his own people. He knows that the seconds they overcome their enemies, they're gonna completely forget that just one chapter before, they were so scared of the Midianites who were stealing their lunch every day that they were hiding in caves. They know that, that his people have a short memory. They're going to forget that it was the hand of the Lord that delivered them. So what God is gonna do is assemble this army in such a way that at the end of the day, there will be absolutely no credit, uh, question about who's gonna get the credits and the glory. So the first cut comes in verse three, 32,000. And in verse three, he says, now just send everybody home who's afraid. Now that, that might seem like a silly thing. You know, it's like, well, I mean, all of the people are, are afraid in some capacity, but it's, it's actually not an arbitrary instruction. If you go and study the Old Testament uh, Jewish Mosaic law, Deuteronomy chapter 20, there were a number of exceptions when it came to combat. That, that when the army assembled together, the law made a number of provisions that said, hey, if you're going through any of these things, you're actually dismissed from the battle. You can go back home. So if you had just built a new home that you had not yet dedicated, or if you had planted a vineyard and not yet been able to enjoy the fruits, if you were betrothed and not yet had the chance to be married, or or if you were afraid because fear was contagious, if you were any of those things, you could be exempt from the battle. And so Gideon gives that order, gives that instruction, and right away we get a force reduction of like 22,000 people. I mean, literally like two thirds of them hear that, they're like, sounds great, I am scared, I'm going home. And so we come all the way down to 10,000. But we, we see that's still not quite enough. And so, so now it's time for the second cut. And so the Lord says to Gideon, this is what I want you to do. Go down to the water. And the one who goes to the water and, and laps the water like a dog, pay attention to who those people are. And then, and then pay attention to the ones who kneel down to drink. Now, just, just a side note here. This is one of those places as we're studying the Bible. Let's, church, let's not miss the forest for the trees here. Um, I heard an entire sermon preached once on, on the, the significance of some guys lapping like dogs and other people kneeling down. And, and, and let's, let's not miss the forest for the trees here. That, that is conjecture, that's speculation. This is what we know. The Lord wanted a process of separating 300 from the other 10,000, and that was the process. Let's not read into that more than may actually be there. So, so we, there's 300 who, who lap water like dogs, and the Lord sets them over to the side. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not a math person. I'm like a books person, but according to my iPhone calculator, I think I'm reading this right. 32,000 out of 300, that, that's like, like just over nine one thousandths of a percent of, of what we started with. 
So multiple modern military terms, we're talking about multiple divisions that have basically been reduced down to barely something that the si- that's the size of a single company. So there's going to be absolutely no question about who gets the glory when this battle's over. And this is how God wins. This is what he does. When the situation looks like it couldn't be more impossible, he shows up and he does the improbable. Church, understand, God doesn't need our numbers. He doesn't need the strength of our numbers. He continues to build his church regardless of what the circumstances are. You know, it might surprise you to hear this morning, the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world right now is not among American Christians, it's happening among Iranian Christians. And if you study just the the development of this over the last few decades, it's nothing short of supernatural and phenomenal. Just a couple decades ago, the number of Christian converts in Iran numbered between about five and 10,000. That number today is between 800,000 and a million. Just this absolutely astronomic explosive growth. And listen, that's happening under an oppressive Islamic government. That's happening under heavy economic sanctions. That's happening under spiritual persecution. Jesus has continued fulfilling his promise to build his church. And in Iran, the gates of hell are continually not prevailing against it. You know, we've talked a lot in recent days about the opposite phenomenon that's happened in the United States. Because the reason we're studying Judges right now, there are so many parallels between what was happening with God's people in this book and what's happening in our nation today. And and so we don't want to lose sight of this. You know, we've, we've actually seen an opposite trajectory in the West, that in spite of freedom, in spite of resources, in spite of the comforts that we have, we get the slightest pushback as Christians in the West and we're ready to throw the whole thing out the door. But, but understand this, if every professing believer in Jesus Christ in the United States completely abandoned the faith today, Jesus would not fail still to, pro- to fulfill his promise to build his church. He would still build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He doesn't need our numbers. He doesn't need our numbers. I always love the words of Psalm chapter 20. And I think what a great verse for an election season in particular. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust where? In the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Church, the promise we can glean from Judges chapter 7 this morning is that regardless of our numbers, we will never be outnumbered. When the Lord is on our side, we never have to fear the numbers of the other side because our strength is not found in numbers. Our strength is found in a name. We will not put our trust in chariots. We will not put our trust in horses. We will not put our trust in kings and judges and presidents and sinners. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. So the Lord tells Gideon, with these 300, I'm gonna give the Midianites into your hand. And the Lord wins the day by building not the biggest army, but the smallest army. Verses nine through 14, we, we go on to see the progression of this text. It says, that same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hands. So again, this is past tense language. I've already done this for you. I have given it into your hand. But if you were afraid to go down, Go down to the camp of Pura, your servant. You shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura's servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. 
when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell down and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. Now, just a, a textual comment here. Again, a little bit of speculation about what does the bread represent? You know, some, some think that if you go back to Judges chapter seven, Gideon prepared a meal which included bread in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And if you remember from that passage, it was consumed in his presence. And, and some have suggested that the return of the bread here is actually a, a sign of confirmation for Gideon that's that this was the Lord doing this work. Um, but be, regardless of what it means, if it means that, or if it means the Lord was showing the Midianites, hey, you've taken the food from the people, and now that's coming back on you. All we know regardless is that this was the result in verse 14. His comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. So the Midianites, they have this dream, and they understand the Lord's hand is about to come upon us. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And I'm actually going to go ahead and read verse 15. It said, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. So this is how God wins. First, he builds the smallest army. Second, we see in verses nine through 14, he then picks the weakest leader. He builds the smallest army and he picks the weakest leader. We were introduced to Gideon a couple weeks ago. The mighty man of valor who had neither might nor valor. He's the weakest member of the weakest family in the weakest clan. He's so weak, in fact, we saw in Judges 7, he needed not one, not two, but three, like multiple signs for God to confirm that he was who he said he was and that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. So you think of Gideon leading this army, it's, it's not exactly like a Braveheart William Wallace situation. You know, Gideon's not exactly General Patton or William Wallace. He's more like Shaggy or Scooby-Doo, right? I mean, this is just a very, like a, a very, very different picture than what we might uh, imagine here. And so the Lord, I, I just love what happens in this passage. You know, go to chapter seven, multiple times Gideon asked the Lord for a sign. And this time the Lord just preemptively gets him one. He's just like, hey, I'm just gonna go ahead and assume right off the bat that you're scared. So uh, in case you're scared, just go with your servant, go down into the camp of the Midianites and listen about the dream that they're gonna have. And so he does this. They overhear the Midianites telling about the dream. A loaf of bread has rolled into the camp. It overturns the camp. And they interpret that as the sword of Gideon leading the army and doing the work of the Lord. So two weeks ago, we saw with Gideon that the Lord knows we are weak in confidence and assurance. And it should just comfort us and encourage us so much this morning that once again, the Lord, knowing who Gideon was, knowing his frame, knowing that he's weak, he just preemptively gives him the confidence that he knows he's going to need. And you know, we, we unpacked this a little bit together a couple weeks ago, but church, I want to continue just to reiterate this, that this is, when you look at a story like Gideon, we, we shouldn't take that to mean that, that we should just get comfortable living in all of our doubts. And you know, we, we shouldn't get in a place where we're constantly questioning God and, and right, well, you got to prove yourself again, and you got to prove yourself again, and you got to prove yourself again. We don't want to just live in that space. But what we do see from Gideon is that when we come to the Lord desiring to have weak faith become strong, the Lord is, is gracious in giving us the faith that we need. If you are lacking today in confidence, if you're lacking in assurance, if your faith is weak, if it's hanging by a thread, the Lord does not need you to get to the place of strength before he can use you. In fact, he can use you in spite of you. He doesn't need us to be strong. And we can rest in that promise as, as followers of Jesus. He's eager to help our unbelief when we are eager to believe. 
You know, all of us t- today, most of us today, we, we know uh, Billy Graham as, as perhaps the most influential evangelist outside of the Apostle Paul in the history of Christianity. I mean, millions of people who heard the message of the gospel as he traveled worldwide with his massive crusades and, and saw so many people came to faith of Jesus who are continuing to follow Jesus even today. I mean, his life and his legacy and his impact have not slowed down one bit. But what you might not know about Billy Graham is that all of that almost never happened. If you go back into the middle of 20th century, back in the 1950s, Billy was early in his ministry and he preached for an evangelistic event that he self-described as just a complete flop. I mean, it just, it did not feel like it went well, did not feel like he preached well and really went through a season where he kind of had a crisis of faith. Um, There was uh, another contemporary of his, an evangelist guy by the name of Charles Templeton, who was also a gifted evangelist and a teacher, but um, he was Princeton educated and he was really getting to a place where he was questioning the legitimacy of scripture and the authority of scripture. And and he was really saying a lot of things to Billy that were uh, really kind of of messing with his confidence in the word of God. And he was pressing into Billy saying, hey, you know, the future is not gonna be found in scripture, the future is going to be found in academia. And and so Billy felt this pressure and he went through this internal crisis of faith where he had so many doubts and he had so many questions and and so many things that he was struggling to reconcile with what he was seeing in scripture. And and as the story goes, um, during this season, he was invited by Henrietta Mears to Forest Home in California, which is a retreat center. And so he goes out in the woods on a walk one day and he's, he's got his Bible, he's wrestling with his questions, he's got all his struggles, he's got all his doubts. And so he, he finds a stump in the woods and he, he places it on the stump and he steps back and he just says, Lord, I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of doubts. That there's some things here that seem to contradict. I'm struggling to reconcile what I'm reading here with, with science and I'm, I'm struggling with a lot of the objections that people like Charles are raising. But, but as the story goes, he, he fell to his knees before the word of God. He said, but in spite of my questions, in spite of my doubts, in spite of what I don't know, I will receive your word by faith. And the very next day, Billy got up and preached and over 400 people respond to the gospel. And this was just the, the, the beginning. A few weeks later, he went on to preach his LA Crusades where over 300,000 people heard the message of the gospel. And this became a landmark event for him. He went on to say of this experience, I sensed the presence and power of God as I had not sensed it in months. Not all my questions were answered. That's so important. Not all my questions were answered, but I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. He doesn't need your faith to be strong. He doesn't need you to resolve all of your doubts. He doesn't need you to get all of your questions answered. You can go in the might that you have because the Lord himself is the might that you have. He confirmed that his word to, to Billy Graham. You know, Billy would go on to preach and in spite of his questions and his doubts and his own personal struggles, the, the hallmark of his ministry, if you go and listen to his sermons, how many times in a single sermon he would make the statements, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And he did not root his confidence in his own ability. He rooted his confidence. He staked his ministry on the authority and the power of the word of God. And the Lord used him in a mighty way because of this. The Lord confirmed his word to Billy Graham in the same way he confirmed it to Gideon. And when the Lord confirmed his word to both of these men, their response was the same. They worshiped and they thanked the Lord. The battle in their heart was won and they began to move forward in faith. It goes on verses 15 through 18. It says, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. 
And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So this is how God wins. He doesn't win the way that we win. God wins by building the smallest army. He wins by picking the weakest leader. Third, we see that he wins by finding the worst weapons. He finds the worst weapons that he can possibly find. Go back a couple chapters to the song of Deborah. We did just a brief overview of this a couple weeks ago. It's absolutely, I think it's just important for us to pause and, and, and just make note of the fact that up to this point in the book of Judges, Deborah still stands out as like the shining example of confidence and faith in the Lord. She rose up as a mother to the nation in a time where there was no leadership and she was judging the people and she, she calls Barak on the authority of the word of God to fulfill his calling to lead the army. And if you read in her song, it just speaks to the power of God all through the book of Judges. In, in Judges chapter five, in her song, she sings, neither sword nor spear was found among 43. And don't, don't let that thought escape you as we're studying the book of Judges. This was at a time in Israel's history, every time you get conquered by an army, what do they do? They take your weapons. The Lord does all of this without them having an arsenal of weapons. And that's why we see all through the book, you've got Jael who kills Sisera with a tent peg because that's what she had. You go back just to chapter four, Shamgar, he kills 600 Philistines with an ox goat. It was a glorified yard tool. Ehud killed Eglon with a homemade sword, which was a glorified prison shank, just something that he whipped up together. We'll see in a few weeks, Samson, he kills a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. Dude was an absolute menace. He had some great pranks too. I'm excited to jump into uh, that section here in a few weeks. And so we get to Gideon's 300. There's no shields, there's no swords, no spears. 300 men, And they are armed with an intimidating arsenal of art projects and band instruments. And that's how the Lord's going to win the day. Because at this point in time, the story's almost comical, right? As, As if they needed one more reminder of just how much the Lord did not need them. He's like, go get your high school band instruments. Go get that little clay pot you made in second grade that's got, I love you, mom, you know, painted on the side. Go get the tiki court torch that you've got stored in your garage. I mean, it's just, it's just silly up to this point. God chooses the worst weapons. He doesn't win the day with swords. He doesn't win it with shields. He doesn't win it with spears. He wins it with torches and trumpets and jars. Church, his weapons are not our weapons. God does not need our weapons. He doesn't win with the same weapons that we need to win. You know, I, I came and hung out with our students uh, Saturday night a week ago, and, and Nico, who was the guest speaker that weekend, I was sitting in worship with them. He, he talked with them that weekend about how worship is war. You know, we, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. We're not in a physical battle. We're not in a military battle. We are in a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, but against angels, against principalities, against darkness, against, against things behind us that we'll never be able to, to fully see. And, and our ultimate weapon in the spiritual battle is worship. It's engaging the, God, the Lord in singing. It's engaging him in his word. It's engaging him in prayer. And we have to recognize as we do these things, it is gonna seem utterly silly in the eyes of the world. Just again, just elephant in the room. I'll, just, I'll go ahead and put it on the table this morning. Think about, if we're just being completely honest, think about how silly what we're doing right now is. Like all the problems that are going on in the world, everything that's broken, 
all the questions we have, all the doubts we have, all the concerns we have, everything that's broken, all the death and all the destruction, it's like, and we're gonna come into a room and listen to someone talk for 40 or 45 minutes. And it kind of create the sense of like, man, shouldn't we be doing something? You know, sh- shouldn't we be getting our hands dirty? Shouldn't we be answering questions? Shouldn't we be building new things? Shouldn't we be, be, be correcting all the problems in the world? And like, yes and amen, we just went through the book of James. We know that faith without works is dead. But church, if we try to do all of that disconnected from our ultimate weapon, with it, which is worship, it's a surefire guarantee that we're gonna fail. We're not, we can't do these things. We can't go forward in, in our own strength. And we have to recognize, especially the moment we're in today, the world is gonna think our weapons are ridiculous. They're going to think with our message, it's, it's ridiculous, it's embarrassing. It's how do you still believe these things? It seems to them like foolishness. And listen, it is. That's exactly what God said it was. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter one, the apostle Paul writes that it pleased God, listen, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The message of the gospel, it is foolishness to those who are dying. To, to those who, who reject this, to those who, who, who are on the outside, who, who don't understand who our God is and what it is he's called us to do, it's all going to seem silly to them. But what you and I cannot do is cave to that pressure. And man, this is what's happening just ad nauseum across the church landscape today is you get a lot of high-minded, over-educated elitists going, well, you know, the world has swords and spears and shields. Isn't it time for us to get an upgrade? We just got our jars, we just got our torches, we just got our trumpets. Isn't it time we got like Bible 2.0? Isn't it time we got the, the, the latest update on the, on the iOS? Don't we need an upgrade? Like, aren't we embarrassed of these things? Isn't this outdated? Isn't this outre- irrelevant? And just watching Christians just collapse in droves over this guilting of like, y'all are on the wrong side of history. And listen to me this morning, that, that's the opposite truth. Guys, our problem is not that we're on the wrong side of history. The problem is that our world is on the wrong side of eternity. So it's foolishness to them. It's utter foolishness to them that they don't see the place for trumpets. They don't see the place for torches. They don't see the place for jars because they do not know the power of our God. And if we're eager to give it up, do we know the power of our God? He doesn't need our weapons. His weapons are not our weapons. Yes, our message is gonna be foolishness to those who are dying. But to those who receive it by faith, you will find it to be the message that gives eternal life. God's weapons aren't our weapons. Ultimately, thousands of years down the road, the Lord would not win the day, the ultimate day, by sword or by spear. He would win it with a crown of thorns on an old wooden cross. His weapons aren't our weapons. He doesn't need our weapons to win the victory. Verses 19 through 22, this is how the narrative unfolds. It says, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, listen, the Lord, everybody say the Lord. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. 
And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zererah to the, as far as the bore of Abel Malholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh and they pursued after Midian. And the rest of the passage just goes on to talk about how they continued to pursue the people. And this is how God wins. He wins by building the smallest army. He wins by picking the weakest leader. He wins by getting the worst weapons and forth. Then he picks the biggest fight. So this is what he does. Give me the smallest army. Give me the weakest leader. Give me the worst weapons. Who's the biggest bully I can find? If you go back to, to verse 12, it says the Midianites were like locusts in abundance. Their camels were without number. They were like sand on the seashore. Gideon's got 300 men. You know, it's, it's hard when you read this, like I think with just modern uh, cinema and everything, it's, it's hard uh, to read this story and not think about, you know, more historical mythical stories. King Leonidas, you know, and his 300 Spartans against the Persians right there at the Battle of Thermopylae. It's hard not to think about that story, except this is like an opposite parallel with Gideon. He's not exactly King Leonidas, right? Like, like there is no, in the story of Gideon, you know, like coming to the edge of the abyss, you know, this is Israel kind of moment where he kicks, you know, the, the, the Midianite into the pits. And, and his 300 men aren't exactly Leonidas's 300, right? Like there's no six packs in this army, right? It's a bunch of dad bods out there, right? They just, it's like Hunting Island on Memorial Day weekend. It's just, just this landscape of, I mean, it's, it's ugly. And God's like, go get your high school band instruments. You know, go, go get some WD-40 and a lighter. Let's do this thing. I mean, it's just, it's just utterly silly how the Lord does this. And without them really doing much of anything except sound like a preschool room on Sunday morning, just make a bunch of noise and it creates all this chaos and they begin to turn their swords upon themselves. God doesn't need our weapons. He takes the weapon of the enemy and the enemies turn against them. And in the same way that the Midianites were defeated by turning the swords on themselves, God purposed to defeat death with death. He overcame the grave by going through the grave. He doesn't need our weapons. He doesn't need our strength. He doesn't need our power. He picks the biggest enemy of all, because understand, the greatest enemy that God has ever faced, it was not uh, thousands of Midianites with Gideon and his small army. The greatest enemy God faced was death, and he won the day with a one-man army, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. It's all he needs. I want you to go with me, uh, Romans chapter eight. Uh, Romans chapter eight, just, just such an incredible promise for us here. We're gonna go to this in just a moment. All this noise sends the camp into to, to a frenzy and into a panic. It just looks so impossible. God, God has intentionally, on purpose, orchestrated an impossible situation, and he just does it to show off his strength. And so before we read Romans 8, I want you just to, to ask this question of yourself this morning. What are you facing in your life today that for you feels impossible? Like, like what's going on in your, in your marriage that you're just like, man, if the Lord doesn't intervene, and honestly, even if he does, I got questions. What's going on with your kids? What's going on in their lives? What's going on with your health? What's going on at work? What sin are you struggling with right now? Who, who do you know that you need to forgive, but you're like, I, I do not have the resources within myself to forgive them? And, and where do you need to humble yourself and admit that you were wrong and go ask for forgiveness for someone else? And it all just feels so much for you. 
It just feels like a weight that's too difficult to bear. And I had a, a conversation with a friend a couple weeks ago and he was, he was just sharing with me just transparently about something that he was struggling with. And he was just like, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I feel like no matter what I do, I just can't pass, get, get past this. And I looked at him and I said, listen, the reality is you can't. You can't. You, you try it with your own strength, with your own ability, with your own internal resources you're gonna fall every single time. You're gonna fall every single time. That the reality is there are probably things in your life that are impossible for you to go through. And the reality is, is even as you go through them, there's gonna be a lot of things that still feel like hell, even as you wait for the promise of heaven. But what we can cling to, the hope that we can have, is that there's absolutely no struggle you are facing today that will not eventually be fully overcome when you see your Lord Jesus face to face. The day is going to come when this is no more. And you can trust that God is going to give you the resources to not just survive, but to thrive each step of the way. And so Romans chapter eight, I wanna read for us verses 31 to 39. And this is like the greatest rhetorical question, maybe of all time. Romans eight, uh, 38 through 30, or 31 to 39, let's read this together. The apostle Paul asked the question, what then shall we say to these things? And here it is. If God is for us, who can be against us? If the Lord's on our side, if he's really for us, who can be against us? And, and really, if we're being honest, the answer to that question is technically everybody, but the rest of the passage says, but who cares? If God's for us, who can be against us? Listen, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all, everybody say all. All, all these things, we are more. Everybody say more. More than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen, for I am sure. I am sure. I am convinced. I am certain. You can take this to the bank and stake your life on it that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, just in case you can think of anything else. None of it will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus Christ was a one-man army. He was the fearless leader. He didn't need a shield. He didn't need a spear. He didn't need a sword. He defeated death with death. So you might be wrestling with the question, like if you, you are just, man, you, you feel like you're just facing something impossible right now and you're just wrestling with the doubt. You're kind of like Gideon, like how can I be sure? H how can I know the Lord is going to see me through? How can I be sure I'm gonna make it to the other side? Well, just like he did for Gideon, he has already given you a sign. Don't, don't miss this this morning, lean into this. What is the sign that you can trust the Lord? He did not spare his own son to save you. When somebody gives the life of their child to save yours, you can trust him for anything. 
If he did not spare even his one and only son, the only perfect human who has ever lived, if he did not spare even Jesus, you can trust that he is graciously going to give you all things. He, he picks the biggest fight. He picked the biggest fight of all, which was the fight with death itself. And he won in a rout. He has overcome the grave and he shares that victory with you and I today. And because Christ has won that victory, Paul says, we're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. If you belong to Jesus, nothing can ever separate you from his love. This is how God wins. He builds a small army, gets the weakest leader, gets the worst weapons, picks the biggest fight, which is why fifth, he receives ultimate glory. He receives ultimate glory. It's what we saw at the very beginning of this text. It's too many people. If I let you do this, you'll take all the credit for yourself. Too many people for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel say, my own hand has saved me. He's not leaving any question about who's gonna win here and about who's gonna get the credit and who's going to get the glory. Christopher Morgan, an article on the glory of God from the Gospel Coalition, he's defined the glory of God as the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections, which he displays in his creative and redemptive acts in order to make his glory known to those in his presence. That's what he's doing. He orchestrates an impossible situation and he does it to demonstrate his immeasurable strength. Guys, he, he knows we're weak and he doesn't need us to be strong. You know what our deluded sense of strength does? It actually prevents us from experiencing the strength of the Lord. We put our confidence, man, some of us just, we are convinced we're smarter than everybody else. And how lucky the Lord is to have me here. And if all these other people could just kind of get on my level, the church would be a much better place. And what I would tell you today, brother, sister, in your arrogance and your pride is no matter how strong you are, you might be the weakest among us because you will never experience the grace and the strength of the Lord within you. The humility of someone who, who acknowledges, I've got nothing to bring to the table. He doesn't need us to be strong. He doesn't need your, your life circumstances to be in perfect order. It, it may look impossible. And, and it, in fact, the, the impossible circumstance you're facing, not only is it, is it not evidence that God's not working with you, it might be evidence that, man, he is setting this up right now to show his glory to you in a way you have never experienced before. Because that's what he loves to do. He loves to wait until it looks like all hope has been lost. And then he shows up to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. As we close this morning, I want to give us two very simple uh, response points to, to reflect on as we go from this place today for you to talk about in your community groups this week. Two, two things that I want to leave us with this morning. Two challenges. Never take credit for what God's doing. And always give him glory for what he's done. Never take credit for what God is doing and always give him credit for what he's done. You know, I was uh, having a conversation with Grayson, who's our worship pastor, and he's, he's been with us since the very beginning of all this, really since before the beginning of all this. And he and his wife, Lauren, were, were among the first few that we sat down with nine years ago. And we're like, hey, the Lord's calling us to this work. And, and so we were just reflecting recently just on the goodness of God and just his provision and the work he's done. You know, we're just celebrating that, you know, just, just dozens of baptisms again this year and people coming to faith in Jesus. And, and he's asked the question, he was like, did you, did you imagine this like nine years ago? And, and it's not a false humility for either one of us, right? We'd just be able to look at each other and be like, absolutely not. You know, this is like six people in our living room nine years ago. And, and, and time and time again, how, how both of us, like just in tears, we have reflected how, how God has used us, not because of us, but in spite of us. 
Like in spite of when we were weak, in spite of when we were tired, in spite of when we were weary, in spite of when we didn't have the resources, the Lord has continued to be for us what we could never be for ourselves. And so church, here's the danger that we face. Like we praise God for what he's doing here, but you and I could very, very quickly, if we're not careful, drift in this space, but very, very quickly, we'll see it happens in one chapter to chapter eight next week. We could very quickly shift gears from look at what God is doing to look at what we've done. And that's where it all goes wrong. The story is not, look at how I've gotten my life together. Look at how much I've grown. Look at how much I've read. Look at how much I've studied. Look at how much I've served. Look at how gifted I am. Look at how, look at how, how gracious and loving and merciful I am and how much good I'm doing for other people. That's not the story. The story of Ephesians chapter two is this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the enemy. You were following this world. You were, you were running headfirst towards destruction, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We never get the credit and he always gets the glory. That's gotta be what defines us as a people. So will you bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning? Just a second, we're gonna take communion, which is just one of those ultimate reminders that there is nothing too difficult for the Lord to overcome. It's our reminder that the Lord has overcome death. He has overcome the grave. He has overcome the power of sin. He has overcome the power of hell and there's nothing that can steal us from his hand, which means there's nothing you're facing in your life that's too impossible for him to overcome. And so whatever that is, whatever that, that, that feels impossible for you this morning, why don't you just go ahead and lay that now at the feet of Jesus. But let's prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the cup, to remember Jesus, to proclaim his death until he returns, to examine ourselves so that we would do this in a worthy manner. And Father, we thank you for what you have done for us that we could have never done for ourselves. That you made the impossible possible by overcoming the grave and raising us to new life through faith in you. We remember this now. Be glorified in our response. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.